0: Let us pray, eternal God, who has given us his eternal word for our our edification, for our guidance, for our comfort. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, upon um, reviewing some past sermons that I've given, I actually had relatively recently preached on uh, Philippians 1, 6, and 7, so in fact, today, I'm going to be jumping ahead to um, 8 through 11. So today, I'll be reading and preaching from Philippians 1, 8 through 11, and I ask that you listen now to the Word of God. and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Apostle Paul had many amazing gifts that are so vital to ministry. I don't know of any pastor living today who possesses them to the same degree that he did. Certainly I don't. But we can think a little bit about Paul's qualities. He, well, was a wonderful preacher. He was an inspiring and very organized writer. He, of course, served as a tremendously effective missionary and an evangelist. He also demonstrated administrative skills, which, between you and me, is probably my weakest area. But it's not a bad one for a pastor to have. Most importantly, though, and here I do dare to hope that I share this with Paul, Paul had a pastor's heart. He cared about his people. And he established churches, and he remained with some of them for a long time, and others for a short time. But wherever he went, he always dealt with the church from the standpoint of a pastoral relationship. Now, for the Philippians, Paul was generally not there. I mean, he was an absentee pastor. And although there is no specific mention made, it is almost certain that there was some kind of local pastor or overseer at the church when Paul was not there. So it's not that they lacked pastoral leadership. And yet, Paul still felt a responsibility for them. He felt that the church at Philippi was, in a real sense, his own. And so he did not feel out of place in offering spiritual advice to the people at Philippi, even when he was not actually among them. Hence, we have this letter. Now, every pastor has certain goals for the people to whom he or she ministers. Pastors take comfort when they grow spiritually, and we feel disappointed in ourselves when we don't grow spiritually. In these verses that I just read, Paul lays bare his heart concerning his fondest dreams for the people of God at Philippi. And again, to say this on a personal note, I think this is good advice that I'm going to share with you. After all, it comes from the Apostle Paul. But the advice is just as much for me as it is for you. And so don't consider this to be some kind of lecture or my trying to impose something upon you. We are all walking together in pilgrimage. We are all striving to grow more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And so having said that, the first thing that Paul is is emphasizing, is lifting up in these verses, is his hope that, the love of the people, that their love will abound more and more. And there was a phrase that often was expressed by non-Christians, even non-Christians in the first century, which, which was this, how these Christians love one another. And one only needs to read 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter that magically appears at every wedding ceremony, it seems, to see how strongly that Paul felt about love as a Christian virtue. And he does not use any of the lesser Greek words for love in this passage. Um, He talks about a divine love, agape love. And just briefly, I mean, in English we just say love. In Greek, they had different words. There was... Actually, the lowest form of love, in a way, although it was still very important, was eros, erotic love, which had to do with sexual relations between a man and a woman in marriage. Um, there was also, however, um, fideo love, or I'm sorry, not filial love, which had to do with the sort of love that, well, you would have in a family, that kind of loyalty, but that could also extend to deep friendships between people. And that was valuable, too. But the most valuable kind of love was agape love, self-sacrificing love, godly love. And he lifts that up. And so Paul recognizes that the one best way, in fact, the only real way for Christians to love one another, is to overflow with that agape love that they have received from God. And God pours out love in infinite measure. And so if we are truly united with God through Jesus Christ, we will indeed have that overflowing love, and that will, of course, affect the way that we treat one another. Paul understood the importance of Christian fellowship. He knew that the spirit of a church was the true measure of its greatness, not how big or splendid the sanctuary was, not... How many programs that had? None of those things that in the American church we often use as measures of success. Instead, it was the spirit of the church. And proper motivation for Christian service only comes when people have fellowship based on their relationship with their Savior and Lord. Now, there are various ways in which people can have fellowship with one another, We can have fellowship with one another based on common interests or common goals, common hobbies. There are all sorts of ways in which we can have fellowship with one another. But Paul is not talking about fellowship based on mutual interests or looking like one another or anything like that. He is basing it on the kind of fellowship that we have with God that is reflected in the fellowship we have with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so Paul also wanted the people in Philippi not just to love, but to even grow in love. And he understood love as the practical principle by which the fruits of the people, or the fruits of faith I should say, became a reality in one's life. People who love are born of God and they know God. And that's actually lifted up in 1 John 4.7. And indeed, I think it is fair to say that no truth is so emphasized in the New Testament. When we love properly, and again, that is the term, when we love properly, we can evaluate the various priorities of life and choose wisely. Because, of course, there are so many priorities in our lives, aren't there? There are priorities every day. So what do we choose to do with the time that God has given us? And it can be a very hard choice sometimes. Sometimes we may be so daunted by what lies in front of us, we don't choose to do anything. I've been guilty of that myself. And yet, we're not supposed to do nothing. We are supposed to do what God would have us to do with our time. And so Paul wants the people in Philippi to love more and more. And he also wants them to approve of things which are excellent. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul believed fervently that proper love would submerge the lower cravings of life. People would then yield themselves to the best and brightest in daily living. Now, Paul certainly meant that Christians should choose what is good as opposed to what is evil. And the thing that can be hard sometimes because evil can be very enticing or alluring. And not even just evil, but things that are not necessarily godly. We all have preferences, don't we? We all have appetites. We all have desires. And the question we must ask ourselves is, do these appetites and desires conform with the will of God? Sometimes they do. God does want us to have some pleasure in life. God does not mean for us to be gloomy. It is not a mark of Christian piety to always be frowning. God gives us a beautiful day that we can enjoy. God gives us friends. God gives us good food to eat. God gives us so many wonderful things. But how much do we emphasize What is created as opposed to the creator? That is the question. And so, of course, Christians must choose what is godly as opposed to what is ungodly or indifferent. But Paul is challenging the people in Philippi to do even more than that. He is challenging them to choose the best. In other words, don't settle for what is good, choose what is best or at least better, move in the right direction. There is that old saying that the good is the enemy of the best. And that means you may have something in your life that is good, but can it be better? You may have something or do something in your life that is something that God approves of, but is there something that you can do better in that regard? It's always a challenge. Now Paul wanted the Philippians to have a sense of what was vital. He wrote to the church in uh, Thessalonica, "Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good." That's 1 Thessalonians 5:21, and he had that same desire for the Church of Philippi. The Greek word Paul uses for prove or test is the word used for testing a coin to see if the metal is genuine, pure, and unalloyed rather than false. The phrase actually relates to the previous one because love is never blind. Real love can see the difference between what is true and what is false. Uh, There are many things out there in the world that say that they're love. They masquerade as love, but they are not true love. True love, as always, is rooted in our relationship with God through Christ. And it is reflected in the way, again, that we treat one another and consider what is important in life. And so Christians who set their hearts on what is highest will never be led astray by side issues. They will have a proper sense of priorities. And instinctively, they will choose those things in everyday living that both glorify God and make their own lives happy and useful. And this is not just a question of everyday living, it's even a question of what we do in church, of what is important to us. People in church, and pastors for that matter, can get caught up in side issues. We worry about whether part of the building needs repair. And yes, sure, the building may need repair, but that shouldn't become the focus of your ministry or you may worry about the budget or specific programs. And if those concerns become all-consuming, then indeed what is happening is focusing on secondary issues as opposed to primary issues, and that never ends well for a church. It always leads in a downward direction. And so Paul, in his amazing wisdom, must have foreseen what would happen in so many churches. And so he is speaking not just to the Philippians, but he's speaking to us today. A third point that Paul raises up is that the people of God should be sincere and without offense. Now, the opening word of this phrase is best translated as, in order that, which shows the definite relationship between approving things that are excellent and being sincere and without offense now there are people and we even talked about them in Sunday school today who live by a strict and good moral code but at some point they have become arrogant and self-righteous and so they turn people away from Christ rather than towards him and in Sunday school we were talking about the Pharisees, but it certainly applies to people who call themselves Christians. The proper kind of choosing the excellent is rooted and grounded in the love that Paul mentions in Philippians 1.9. You see, love produces discernment, and discernment produces proper choices, And the result is a sincerity to cause others to know the Savior who inspires such righteous and yet winsome living. And we all know, I think, both kinds of people. And sometimes we have been both kinds of people, perhaps, where we know people, again, who have the right values, the right principles that we agree with, and yet their manner is off-putting. They may be right, but they don't have love in their hearts. But then we also know great saints of the faith. We read about them from history, and we also know them personally, who do display the right mixture of high principle and a loving attitude. And it is those examples that we should strive for. Now the word sincere is mentioned, and that comes, interestingly, from a combination of two Greek words. The first is sunshine, while the other is the verb judge. And so the word means that, which is being viewed in the full light and found to be clear and pure. So openness and clarity and purity. And in the Latin language, the word "sincere means "without wax." Now, that sounds quite a bit different, but what does that mean? It's a much more down-to-earth sort of um, sort of definition, and Roman culture was, in a sense, a lot more down-to-earth than Greek culture in many ways. Ancient merchants, or merchants in antiquity would sell statues in the marketplace. And if the statues had defects or flaws, the merchants would fill them with wax. So there might be a crack or a hole or something or a pit. And so they would try to smooth that over with wax. And so it would look good, but there would still be flaws. And so if there was a thing, a statue, for example, completely without flaws, it was said to be sine sere sine seri, sincere, or in other words, without wax. Seri is wax and sine is without. And so one can clearly see that the English word comes from the Latin. Paul was concerned that the Christians at Philippi should never cause other people to stumble in their own moral lives because of their inconsistencies in actions and attitudes. And so in this context, the word that Paul is using is best understood as freedom from offensiveness. In other places, the word has the idea of not jarring or shocking anyone. And living an example of the gospel today is certainly our need, as much as it ever could have been in ancient Philippi. There are people who profess being Christians they may really be Christians could be any one of us who will say or do something that is not attractive to people considering Christ and that's true from the newest church member to the longest serving pastor or church official people do have certain expectations of what it means to be a Christian. And if we cause scandal or great offense, we harm the cause of Christ and we harm the mission of the church. And again, that is not... I'm not saying that to you in a spirit of lecturing anyone or criticizing anyone. It's simply, I think... A mutual, well, it's a, it's a reminder to all of us that we need to live up to certain standards that God sets out for us so that more and more people will be attracted to the life-saving, eternal life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And the light of God shines on a truly sincere person. And such a person is unimpeded by either duplicity or sin this person sincerely searches after truth and such a person of genuine sincerity upon arriving at the living truth as embodied in Jesus Christ will humbly accept the revelation that God has made in his son when someone who sincerely searches after truth comes face to face with Jesus that person will find that the seeking has not been in vain And again, this is on the people who are seeking. There are people who may think they are seeking. They will say they are seeking, but they are not really seeking because they come with the wrong attitude. They expect and demand that God will prove something to them. On more than one occasion, um, I've had, well, I've read, or even had discussions with, a term I would call village atheists, and they all pretty much say the same thing, it seems, raise the same objections to God. And one thing they say is, oh, well, if God or Jesus Christ appeared before me right now, you know, in the flesh, then I would believe. And so that is testing the Lord. And that's not the way to encounter Jesus Christ to make demands of God. Because if you are in a position to make demands of God, no one is in a position to make demands of God. And we are not going to come to God until we let go of arrogant presumption and an expectation that God owes us anything. But a true seeker after God will indeed encounter him through Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul lifts up the importance of waiting for the second coming. Waiting for the day of the Lord. Now, Paul was not what we would call a radical, I suppose, concerning eschatology, concerning the second coming, in other words, or the fulfillment of all things, but he did refer to it often. And no doubt exists that Paul expected Christ to come during his own lifetime. Now, does that mean that Paul was wrong, therefore, that we can't trust what he said? Because obviously, Jesus did not come again during Paul's lifetime. But his belief was in harmony with what Jesus taught. You see, we should be expecting him at every hour, or any hour. That's awfully hard to do. I mean, the world sort of captures us in itself, and this seems to be reality, everything that we see and sense. And yet, we are to live as if Jesus Christ would come in the next hour. And that is what Paul did, and that is what we should do as well. You see, to Paul, the present life prepares one for the moment when Jesus Christ will appear to claim his own and judge those who have rejected him. No greater incentive to moral excellence can be found than the consciousness of Christ's imminent coming. And the particular grammatical, uh, grammatical construction of this verse is that the word translated until means more specifically in view of that glorious day. Paul meant that our living should be that it will withstand the scrutiny of that great day. And so the preposition used emphasizes the ability to stand the testing. If the Christians at Philippi live with a sense of Christ's imminent coming, and if they live with a sense of what is truly vital then they would have no fear of being tested by God at the second coming of Christ. No fear. One who is familiar with the writings of Paul will remember that this great and glorious day was never far from his thoughts. And so all of these aspirations that Paul lifted up and that I've shared with you today result in the concluding verse of this section, verse 12. The Christian life consists not just of personal piety, although that is important, but rather of service, of reaching out. This service includes the giving of oneself to bring people to faith in Christ as personal Savior and Lord. And a significant fact about the original language of this verse is that Paul says literally, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And that suggests an interesting interpretation. All of our Christian growth is due to having been personally forgiven by the one who literally bought our righteousness when he died on the cross for our sins. And so these two ideas really merge into one. We are to serve him as a fruit of being redeemed by him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.